I think it can be said that there is a common experience for every man, for every woman, and for every child that goes across cultures, it goes across continents, and it goes across the centuries. And that common experience is the pursuit of each generation's version of the good life. The pursuit of the good life. We are all searching and looking for the life that will ultimately bring us satisfaction, that will bring us the happiness that we long for. All of us. Our current culture's version of that, our version of the good life that pervades today, it values individual autonomy, it values economic stability, and it values relative safety. Perhaps above all, it values a public facade that suggests we have it all put together. We want to at least be presentable if we can't have everything else. Now, of course, this vision of the good life runs quite contrary to the one that was presented to us last week in Matthew's gospel. We saw it laid out in the Beatitudes, right? Beatitude, it means blessed are, happy are. This, these list of things, this is the good life that you will call blessed. And so Jesus says, among other things, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice. He even says, blessed are those who are persecuted. That's the good life. To be humble, to be poor in spirit. To have concern for others and to be the subject of public derision. That's the good life that Matthew's gospel gives us. I think there are few in this world who would look at this life and think they've got it figured out. Few people would take a picture of the persecuted or the poor in spirit and hashtag it with life goals or blessed. Few people would look at this vision in the Beatitudes and say, that's what I want. But there it is. The good life presented for us in Scripture. And so as we move into our readings this morning, we want to expand on this vision. We want to get some guidance. I hope many of you have your Bibles with you. If you do, you can open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Um, and if that's, if that's on your phone or your tablet, that's fine. Feel free to open that up. We're going to go to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 20. And we're going to see Jesus expand on this vision of the good life. And we're going to see two things about it. How does God's vision of the good life influence the culture around us? And what is required to achieve it? How does God's vision of the good life influence the culture around us and what is required to achieve it? So first, how does the good life 
that Jesus has laid out for us influence the culture around us. We see that in verses 13 to 16. I'll just read them real quickly for you. And Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so the good life influences the culture in the same way that salt can influence food or light can influence darkness, right? Salt generally has two uses as it relates to our food. It helps preserve our food, right? It helps keep it from spoiling. And in many ways, a Christian leading the good life, the blessed life, has the means of helping preserve the culture of helping keep it from spoiling. A life lived in dedication to the Lord is a life that will um, influence those around us in our sphere of influence, that will influence them for good. And so in a way, we can preserve, and in a way, we can flavor. Salt brings out the flavor in food, right? You, you put salt on food not to taste the salt, but so that the, the taste of the food will become more prominent, And in many ways, we can salt the world like that with our lives. We have the ability through Christ to bring out the flavor of God's creation in a way that this world can't possibly understand. We can can bring out the, the flavor that God has built into his world. We're also called to be light, to provide guidance in the midst of darkness. The church, the people of God, are, are called to be a city on a hill. Imagine that. Not just one single light shining on top of a hillside, but, but a collection of lights making up a city, bringing guidance to the weary traveler in the dark world. Or perhaps more locally, we can think of a lighthouse on a dark coast that, that provides illumination and brings guidance to the ships that are searching for a port of call. Salt and light. The question is, though, what good is salt if it's not doing its job? What good is light if it's hidden under a basket? Salt can't help with flavor. Salt can't help with preservation if it's lost its saltiness. Now, it's interesting. Salt doesn't really lose its saltiness. And so that's, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, well, no one's totally sure, but I think we in the South have a little bit of an idea. Anybody ever fill up their salt shaker and fail to put rice in it? It's hard as a rock, right? It's worthless. Might as well send it up north so they can put it on their sidewalks and use it to <laughs> melt the snow. <laughs> yes. What good is salt if it's not doing its job? What good is light if it's hidden in the darkness? And so the fact of the matter is, if we are to be salt and light, we've got to be in the world. Our temptation as Christians, I think, is to huddle up, right? To circle the wagons. 
to board up the windows. We're in, y'all are out, let's keep it that way so we can be safe. But we can't be salt and light if we're boarded up. We've got to be out. We've got to be in the world and engaging the world. If we want to bring it flavor, if we want to bring it preservation, if we want to bring it light and guidance in the midst of darkness. The great Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, wrote this. It will never do to idle through life, thinking and living like others, if we mean to be owned by Christ as his people. Have we grace? then it must be seen. Have we the Spirit? There must be fruit. Have we any saving religion? Then there must be a difference of habits, a difference of tastes, and a turn of mind between us and those who think only of the world. Salt and light evidently imply peculiarity, both of heart and of life, of faith, and practice, we must dare to be singular and unlike the world if we mean to be saved. We must be singular and unlike the world. We can't separate ourselves by the world, and yet we can't become um, too comfortable with it either. We must be in it, but we must be different. And friends, that's what Jesus' vision of the good life is putting before us that we might be salt and light in a way that gives glory to God. So when Somerville, when Charleston, when the world looks at the church, they see the glory of God. That is our call. That is how we influence culture around us. So the second question is, what then is required to achieve this? How are we going to do it? We'll see this in our next section. We're going to skip down to verse 20, and then we'll go back up. But, but really quickly, verse 20, this is our um, prescription. This is how we live the good life in this world. Jesus says this, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness, unless your holiness is another way to read that. Unless your um, who you are is better, more holy than the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You will never know the good life. You will never be able to be salt and light in this world. Now, if you know anything about the scribes and the Pharisees, you realize that's quite a daunting task. These were the most holy people of Jesus' day. They kept every aspect of the law. In fact, so that they could be sure that they kept every aspect of the law, they invited new laws outside of Scripture to prevent them from breaking the laws that were in Scripture. And so, for instance, on the Sabbath, you're supposed to keep it holy. Well, that must mean that we can't do any work. And so the question is, well, what is work? Can I walk? Well, you can walk some, but only 3,000 steps beyond the, the edge of your house. 3,001 steps, all of a sudden you're working and you're breaking the Sabbath. You shouldn't plow a field on the Sabbath, okay? You want to keep it holy. So really, just to be safe, you probably shouldn't even drag a stick on the ground, lest you be seen as tilling a field. 
That is the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee before he was converted by Christ on the road to Damascus. And he said this about himself. He said, I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. And when it comes to following the law, I am blameless. Blameless before the law. And Jesus says, you have to exceed that. You have to exceed that to be salt and light and to know the good life of God. So what is it about this relationship, these relationships that the Pharisees had, both with God and with each other and the community around them? Well, a key to understanding this is the Pharisees' relationships and their keeping of the law was what I like to call transactional. It involved a transaction. We'll do this, you do that. Okay? God will keep the law. You elevate us in your kingdom. People around us, we keep the law, you give us honor and status because of how holy we are. It is a transactional relationship. And so even as they relate to their enemies, it's transactional. If, if, if an enemy hurts, um, hurts my hand, I get to hurt his hand, right? An eye for an eye. That was sort of the, the mantra that they followed, this transactional relationship. Now, Let's not kid ourselves and pretend like we don't have these relationships as well. We do. We have transactional relationships. With your dry cleaner, perhaps, you, might like, you may like your dry cleaner. They may be a great dry cleaner. They may be very kind and friendly. But if they stop doing a good job cleaning your clothes, you're going to end that relationship, right? You're going to find another dry cleaner. Maybe you have a transactional relationship with your church. As long as your church has good preaching, and I'm sorry if you're here, that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> At least not for me. As long as your church has good preaching or good programs or nice music, it's meeting your needs, then you'll keep coming to church, maybe even giving some of your income to support the church. But as soon as the church starts failing on its end, you stop checking, start checking out on yours. It can be a transactional relationship. Now, these aren't always bad per se, but I'm just saying it's there. We have it with our friends. In a rare exception, do you have a friend that you would love unconditionally? But mostly, relationships with our friends depend on them relating back to us. And more and most, more so in our marriages, we have transactional relationships. As long as my spouse is meeting my needs and I'm meeting hers... This marriage is going to work. But the second we stop, it's really easy to get a divorce, right? That is a transactional relationship. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness must exceed that. It must exceed a transactional relationship. So what does this mean? Jesus isn't about us following the rules. He is about changing our hearts. He's not about us interacting with God in a, in a tit-for-tat sort of way. He's about receiving an unconditional love of God and, and offering that unconditional love towards others. I read a book from Amazon a couple weeks ago. I got a used book. Um, it's for class I'm taking. It's on Luther. It was a lot cheaper to get it used, and it was in good shape. And it came, and the book that I, was, I was, uh, ordered was called Word and Sacrament. And the book that I got was something about, um, what was it, like, I don't know, church and community. 
It was the wrong book. I ordered volume 39, I got volume 35. Now I've got a choice, right? The, the, the carnal side of me wants to get on Amazon and write a review of that company. They sent me the wrong book. It was late for my class. Now I'm going to fail my class. Do not ever order from these people again. Right? That's what we want to do. But I've got to decide. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe, maybe there's another way to deal with them and to interact with them. Am I going to be transactional or am I going to be loving? How are we going to do this? And so the point that Jesus is making is that, that life is, is, the law is much more profound, in a way more challenging, because it's not going for our actions, but it's going for our hearts. Look at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come to fulfill the law. Jesus is embodying the purpose of the law. What was the goal of the law? Why was it there in the first place? He's embodying the purpose of the law because the law is not ultimately about changing our behaviors, but about changing our hearts. The problem is the law did not have the power to change our hearts. But when Jesus came and in perfect obedience fulfilled the law of Scripture, he has loved us with an unconditional love that makes us makes our hearts change. It makes us want to love others in the same way. It restores our relationship to God, and it restores our relationships with each other. How did he do this? He died on the cross, right? Did he wait till we put our act together, got our act together? Did he wait until we stopped sinning, or at least stopped sinning a little bit before he came to die for us? No. He died for us while we were still sinners. He gave his life for us despite the fact that we did not love him, despite the fact that we treated God like an Advil to meet our needs whenever we needed him. He died for us because he loves us unconditionally. And then he was raised from the dead so that he might create a community of people that would love this world unconditionally. So then, what does this tell us about the good life? Well, two things. In Christ, God is loving you in a way that is independent of who you are, independent of what you've done. It does not matter if you meet the expectations of this world. It does not matter if you have the right size house or the most perfectly behaved kids or the best friends. It does not matter if your public facade is impeccable. It does not matter what you've ever done, what you've ever thought, what shame you have ever experienced. Christ loves you anyway, and he loves you first. And he's inviting you to receive that and to know that the good life is embodied in the one who died on a cross for our sins. And then secondly, Jesus is inviting us to love others in a way that is independent of who they are, independent of what they do, what they've done, what they look like, how big their house is, whether they even have a house at all. He's inviting us to look at our friends and our families and our neighbors and to offer grace He's inviting us to look at our spouse 
and to love them in spite of their imperfections. He's inviting us to look at this world and to invite them into the kingdom. Friends, in Christ, we're invitedly invited to, to not worry about what we look like to the outside and instead go to those in need, go to those who don't know the Lord, go to those who are on the outcast in the margins of this world and invite them in to the kingdom. And we can do that without worrying about our reputations and what it might look like to others. We can do that because Christ first loved us. And so friends, let us live the good life, the blessed life, a life of humility, public derision, but above all, a life of love that loves others unconditionally and invites them into the kingdom of God and shows them the cross of Christ. Let us pray. Lord, thank you that you, um, <clears throat> that you love us without condition. That you have fulfilled a law in a way that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees. That you have showed us what it looks like to be a city on a hill and a light to the world and salt of the earth. So, Heavenly Father, may we first receive this love of your Son, Jesus. And secondly, may we go out from this place sharing it with the world. That this world might look at our works, however, however imperfect, however wanting they may be, and see your glory and your love.